Hey everybody, it's Sunday, and everybody knows what Sunday is. And if you haven't been here before, Sunday is reading day. We decided, I decided at Christmas, we started to do this and read a Christmas story every Sunday or from a book theme for Christmas. And then I thought, well, people seem to like it. So let's just continue it on. And then we read The Ghost of Light 401, and then we read a book by another author. And today we're reading The Mojave Incident. This is like our fourth day doing it, which is pretty cool. It's a really cool book. It's a really scary. It's one of it's one of the scariest UFO abduction things I've ever read in my life. It used to keep me up at night reading it. You know? And it's not only the abduction itself that was scary, it's what happens after the abduction that's scary. Because things keep happening to this family. Get my mic set up here. It's weird because I'm gonna be leaning forward, so I gotta make sure I get this where I need it. There we go. You know, it's what happened to this family after the fact and, and the stuff that keeps happening to them. So I'm excited to read this. My name, by the way, I'm ahead of myself. My name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour or so. And I'll be reading to you. So if you're, you know, kind of kicking back, put your slippers on, put your bunny fluffies on, alligator fluffies, whatever it is you use. And I'm going to read to you from the Mojave Incident. And uh, it bounces back and forth chapter-wise, but I'm trying to keep it straight through for continuity. Okay. Anyway, I am the owner of the... It's almost a paranormal. <laughs> I am the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 35 strong up and down the state, which means that if you have a problem and you're down in Merced or Bakersfield or someplace like that, we have people available to go there and help you out. And it's all free. We don't charge. It's all free to charge. Okay. So uh, if you need some paranormal help, contact me here. Or contact, or actually contact me via the uh, radio site at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Or if you want to check us out, get to know what my what my team's done because we've been going, we've been at this for almost twenty for almost twenty years and some change. CaliforniaHaunts.org. Okay, check us out there. That's a great place to check us out. I'm giving five minutes for people to get to uh, do what they're doing and get comfy and everything before I start. I want to thank everybody for the donations. Thank you so much. You are helping me pay the bills this month. I've still got a ways to go, but for the people that have donated this month, thank you. I'm, 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 I'm beholden to you. I mean, the show, the show wouldn't be able to stay on the air without those donations. You know, internet bills, you name it. Computer, yada, 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 right? So this show wouldn't be able to stay on the air without you guys, so I really appreciate it. And if there's anybody else out there that would like to help me out, that'd be great too. All right? PayPal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, Venmo, and then type in California Haunts. Because we don't make money. I don't make money doing this. My team doesn't make money ghost hunting. We're here to entertain, you know, we're here to help people. I'm here to entertain. And I'm also here because I love doing this. Plus, with the ghost hunting, we like to help people. We like to educate people. That's what we do. Now, that being said, I have a California Haunts meetup. You want to join our meetup? That's great. You don't have to be in the Sacramento area to join. You can just join. And that's where I, I, I put a lot of our events, our outside events. Like right now, starting May 21st, I'm going to be teaching a ghost hunting 101 class, which is going to teach you the art of ghost hunting and how to do a proper ghost hunt and how to make sure that the evidence you get is is, is thorough and, and, you know, and, and you know it's something that, that's not going to be explained. All right, so check out the California Haunts Meetup at meetup.com for that. But I'm going to be teaching that from 11 to 1 o'clock on Saturday, May 21st. I think that's Armed Forces Day. So if anybody's interested in the class, 
come on down and sign up because it's going to be a great class. In fact, um, I'm recruiting for my team. You know, we're starting to put things back together after COVID. And so I'm picking people that take this class. I'm picking from within these people to become members of my paranormal team. Because even if you join the team or want to join the team, you have to take this class. You have to take this class and then the technical class on how to operate the equipment. There's two classes. But there's plenty to do in this first class, you know. So that's something to think about. So check out our meetup. And finally, you know, you can tell I don't have glasses on today so I can actually see what I'm doing. So I'm going to be working on getting the website caught up because it's behind a month or so because I couldn't see. My eyes are that bad. Even, even with the touch screen on my computer, it was, it was horrible. So <laughs> now I can get back to it. And that's what I'll be doing tonight is get that website at least caught up tonight. And that's a cool website. When you go on there, I've got paranormal news on there. You can check out some different ghost, ghost, ghosty stories. You can look at all our backlog shows. From, you got to figure there's 250 shows just from this format. And I was on Blog Talk Radio for like 10 years before that. So I'm archiving all that on, on onto this radio page. So you're going to get to see all that stuff too. We've been around for a long time. Okay. Well, welcome today. And I want to thank everybody once again that's donated. I really appreciate it. You know, like everybody else, I've got bills to pay just like, just like you, 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 and just like you, you, and you. And I really appreciate it because it helps me pay the bills for the team. Not my personal bills, but for the team and for the, keep the equipment going and all that. So thank you so much. And if you, like I said, if you feel the need to donate again, please do. Okay. Let me turn on my tablet. And this is another thing. See, I have to buy a new tablet. Look how old my tablet is. See that? It's a Samsung Note. I think it's a 7 or an 8. I want the newer one. I want to get even a refurbished one. You know what I mean? But uh, I can't put anything else on here. I can't. It's a, the, the, the stuff it runs is so old, I can't even update the jelly bean or whatever they call that. Jelly bean or whatever it is that runs on, on these things. So I have to get a new one. I can't even access my email on here anymore. Okay. That being said, let me pop on in. It's a Galaxy Note 8.0. Anybody knows where I can get a rebuilt Galaxy Note? I know there's a 10 point because I I like the S Pen because I take a lot of paperwork with me when when I do ghost hunts for the clients to sign, and it's just a hassle having a ton of paperwork. So what I do is, hello Grandmaster UV, hello Pamela. So what I do is I put all the paperwork on here and people can sign it. Makes it a lot easier. Okay, so the Mojave incident. Let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, for people that haven't, uh, let me open this up. Don't you love it when the pages flip? There we go. Come on, come on, come on. I am really good at technology, except when it comes to this. Okay, Kindle. So the Mojave Incident is a book I read probably ten years ago, something like that, maybe less. And um, out of all the all of all the alien abduction books I've ever read, this has to be the most terrifying thing I have ever read. This gave me nightmares. I'm a ghost hunter, right? So I'm used to reading ghost hunt stuff and alien abductions, all that stuff. This scares the hell out of me. You know, because when you think about the abduction itself was scary enough, but then what happens after the fact, like like what we talked about last week, when they went in to check on their, their, their little four-year-old son, and he was in he was in the bed in his bedroom spitting like a top. Remember? And then she gets finally, then the, the mom finally gets him to bed, goes to turn the light off in the room, and the kid screams because he doesn't want the light off because 
the little men with red eyes are in the room. See, scary stuff, okay? That's what's scary about this is the fact that it followed the moment. We know this happened, and we know this happens with generally with abductions anyway, but this literally, you know, this is so descriptive about being followed home by these things and having an eye kept on them. And did they want the kids? Did they want the adults? Ugh. So we're going to continue, and I'm going to read for about an hour. And it depends where we end up, because if we end up in the middle of, like, a chapter, I'm going to go on, because I don't want to, like, cut a chapter off. Okay? So, you know, I don't want to cut something off in the middle. Because they've got subheads, like, dates on these things. In fact, I'm going to go back a page here. Can I go back a page? There we go. There's, like, subheads, like, La Mirada, California, June 12, 1990, 3.05 a.m. You know, if I, I'll, like, this time I stopped above that. So if I come across one of those in an hour, then I'll stop. But if I don't, and it's in the middle of a of a uh, chapter, I'm going to just go on. So just be prepared. So get your popcorn, get your snacks, and let's do this. Again, if anybody knows where I can get a good re refurbished 10-inch tablet with an S Pen, that would be great. So I got my S Pen right here. Okay, La Mirada, California, June 12th, 1990, 3.05 a.m. It was four weeks later in the dead of early morning that the dreams recurred with an intensity unlike any of the others. In his, Tom saw himself back in the camper, trapped and screaming, while the eliminated creatures encircled him. He was screaming, but there was no sound. And then he saw a flashing image. It was of a long, narrow tunnel with lights running along the sides. But then it was gone again, and then he saw a being who was all white, the color of the tunnel lights. Again, he saw a flashing image, and it was of several beings like that. They were trying to restrain him. Then the vision was gone, and only the first figure remained. The being is four feet tall. He wears a white luminous uniform with an upturned arrow on the chest. He has no facial features, no mouth or lips, only slits. He passes directly through the wall. He stands behind the headboard. He stays there. He passes three long fingers over Elise's face, over and over. Tom can only see the hand. He opens his eyes, and directly above him is the face of the white being. You're dreaming, he hears the voice say. Then he looks to Elise's face and sees the burn marks that his fingers have left. Hey, wait a minute, Tom said aloud. This is no dream. He turned to Elise and gasped. He was awake. He knew he was awake, and Elise had the burn marks all over her face. Elise's eyes opened. The expression on Tom's face scared her. What? What is it? Go to the mirror, he urged her. Go to the mirror, now. Elise walked to the mirror. My God, what is this? She screamed. Tom, Tom, what have they done? They've burned my face. That's all right, he said, holding her close to him. It's going to be okay. He eased away from her. Now you just stay right there, sweetheart, while I go get the camera. Tom came back breathless with a Polaroid in hand. Elise was horrified, hysterical, as he snapped photos one after the other, still trying to calm her and himself as he clicked away. Just take it easy. Everything's going to be okay, Flash. He sucked for air. That was him, Flash. In the tunnel with lights, Flash. He and three others are who I was struggling with. Flash. That night in the desert. Flash. 
Tom took five photos of the burn marks on Elise's face that morning. When developed, they showed the marks resemble patterns and symbols. A thunderbolt on her right, and on the left, the imprint of three distended fingers wrapped around Elise's face from behind. Later that morning, Tom awoke to the sound of Elise, of Elise sobbing hysterically as she stood before their full-length bedroom mirror. Neither had any recollection of what had occurred hours earlier, and so he, like Elise, was shocked to discover them. Look at what they've done to me, she wailed. Look at what they've done to my face. Tom walked over to her. He touched her right. Hang on a second. Yes. He touched her right and then her left cheek, studying the peculiar marking so clear yet so inexplicable. And here, she raved, waving the five photos in his face. Look at these. Tom flipped through the photos. Polaroids, he shook his head. Did I take them? You must have, Elysius. You must have taken them this morning. But look, the photos are blackened. And they made us forget again. Don't you see what they're doing? Baby, I'm so sorry, he whispered, holding her. Does it hurt? Should I call a doctor? No, Elise bellowed. I don't want anyone to see me like this. Do you understand that? Somberly, he nodded, watching as his young wife felt the side of her face with her fingertips. They don't look like they'll scar or anything if that helps, he soothed, trying to understand what might be going through her mind. It's not that, she seethed. It's not just that. She swung around to him. This is our house. Do you understand that? Our house, she repeated. With our children, and they think they can just do anything they feel like. Elise fell into his arms like a marionette whose wires had suddenly been severed, sobbing uncontrollably. I'll stay home from work today, he said. I'll take care of the children. You just relax. Call your mom. Talk to her. Take as long as you want. Because Elise, I swear to you, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to get there, he vowed, if it kills me. When Vivian arrived at their home, she was shocked to see Elise's shattered psychological condition and the mysterious markings that covered her face. The welts remained visible for another 24 hours, when suddenly they faded, then disappeared entirely. Thousand Oaks, California, August 23, 1990, 3.30 p.m. Paul Moran had been a party animal in college. Standing 6 foot 1 inch and weighing 190 pounds, he was a small defensive lineman in Redlands, but what he lacked in size, he made up for in heart. Aggressive on the field and wild in the nightclubs, he was also a guy who wrote poetry off-season. Since college, he had settled down going into business for himself, but always, through whatever changes had occurred in his life, he and Tom just jumped on me. Hang on a second. What's the other thing with this? Okay. Sorry about that. He and Tom Gifford remained best friends. This afternoon, the two sat in a darkened corner of the British pub. Morin, but Morin bunched over on the table, mesmerized by what Tom had told him. I don't want to burden you, pled Tom, but who else do I go to? My own parents don't believe what I'm saying. Yeah, Morin agreed, locked in thought as they stared at one another eye to eye for a drawn moment. But I believe you. Tom's eyes narrowed. You mean that? Paul smiled, nodding. Hey, you're the Duke. He slapped Tom's shoulder from across the table. We were roommates all through college. If I can't believe the things you tell me, I can't believe anything. Tom's eyes were still wary. Wary. So you don't think I'm crazy? Hell no, he pledged. Tom withered. Well, Elise is starting to think we both lost it. And to tell you the truth, he confessed, I was starting to agree with her. Moran was shocked. 
No, no, he argued, dismissing the notion out of hand. I don't know a lot of things, but you don't have to be Albert Einstein to realize that 99% of what we take for granted is real is either a bunch of scientists kidding themselves or delusion. Tom smiled for the first time in a week, then took a sip of Guinness. 500 years ago, people thought the world was flat. That was real. Moran shook his head, but it wasn't. 300 years ago, Galileo was called a heretic because he didn't believe the planets revolved around the Earth. That was real, too. He shook his head, but it wasn't. He looked at Tom squarely from across the table, his dark eyes and chiseled countenance intent. I say the next one to fall is Newton. Tom shook his head, laughing. Moran. No, no, I mean it. I read a book called Chaos by James Gleick that proves Newton was dead-ass wrong in his theories about gravity. He took a pull from a stout. If that goes, my friend, the book is rewritten on everything that's possible and impossible. More incensed inner sadness that his buddy harbored, and how deep-rooted it must be. How is Elise? Tom's eyes lifted from the tabletop. He took a gulp of Guinness. Not good. This? He nodded. Paul, you don't understand how deep a thing like this runs. We don't sleep at night for fear of what they'll do to us. We worry about our kids constantly. Elise hasn't had her period in months, and though she doesn't say it, I know she believes they're somehow, they've somehow altered her. He fluttered his hand at the ineffable. I don't know. Taking her ovaries, I think. When would they have done that? We don't know, Tom said, shrugging. The part I told you about in the camper lasted eight hours. We were conscious and pretty much aware of everything for the whole time. His brow furrowed. But when we slept, Elise thinks we were already on board the craft in some kind of holding area. That might be when it happened. We have no way of knowing. And you've, and you've told no one else about this? Just our parents, my brother, Ron, and Elise's brother, Glenn. Because you're afraid no one else would believe you. That's right. I like my job, Paul. I'm already in enough hot water without this kind of thing. Everyone would think I was crazy. He snickered. Or on drugs. So you and Elise just continue to carry around this incredible dark secret? We live with it, Tom retorted. Moran toured with his beer glass. My God, Tom, is there anything I can do to help? Tom stared at him, deadly serious, as he brought the glass to his lips. That's the point, old friend. There ain't nothing nobody can do. It was an hour and a half drive back to La Mirada from Thousand Oaks on the 101, so Tom had some time to try to, to put his and Elisa's situation in perspective. Certainly, Paul Moran's words of encouragement had helped, because God knew he felt alone these days. So did Elise, and it was eating away at her. In some ways, that was why he converted to her church, Tom ruminated, to be with her in something she trusted, but as important, to give him something to fight back with. He needed some weapon against them, to stave, to stave them off, and probably it was religion, because in his heart of hearts, he still could not comprehend whether the creatures were consummately good or consummately evil. By the time Tom got home, it was after six, and he'd missed dinner. Elise was annoyed at him for that, but more for missing work. So with an air of tension in the house, he mushed a cold lamb chop with a glass of milk, helped Elise give the kids a bath, watched the last hour of a TV movie, then retired for the night. My allergies. La Mirada, California, September 10th, 1990. 3.35 a.m. 
The episode in June involving the burn marks on Elise's face had jarred the Giffords to the very core of their existence. Now it was clear that nothing was sacred. Nothing was private. And the scope of alien involvement in their lives was total. More, it was obvious that there was much that they did not know. About the enigmatic markings on Elise's face, about the photographs they surmised had been taken by Tom, and about their original experience at the Mojave itself. Still, bits and pieces of information concerning that period began seeping through from their subconscious, like random pieces of, of a puzzle, mostly in images and always in half-remembered dreams, such as the ones both experienced on the morning of September 10, 1990. The images were clear, but disconnected for Tom who pictured himself in the Mojave engaged in a deadly struggle with four of the white beings who pulled him and Elise from out, from out of the camper. Drugged, or somehow altered mentally, he lashes out at them, flailing his massive arms in an effort to resist. Elise is beside him, being led by two others. She reaches out, grasping for his hand, as she is being pulled away, but it's no use for now. He, too, is under their tele telepathic control, ambling stiffly away from the camper through a long tunnel of lights. He and Elise are separated now, and in the dream, Tom is again thrown back to the struggle, the struggle to resist, with Elise's arm extended, her fingers stretching out for his help, but grasping air. For Elise, the images only be began at the moment as she envisioned herself already alone, being led by a white, shimmering being down a tunnel, walking, but not walking, more like floating. Is she dreaming or drugged, or what is it? What is she? Elise finds herself wondering. And where is Tom? And why is she so frightened? If everything is okay, like they keep telling her. But it isn't okay. She knows, because Tom is gone, and she is floating down the tunnel with blue lights until they arrive at a white room. She enters the table. The operating table is silver and shiny like chrome, with the round light that stares down at her like a huge round eye. Elise dreams about the light and about walking from the dream, waking from the dream to see the large, flat, insect-like face of the alien examiner as it stares deep into her panicked eyes. Elise's head jerked, off, <clears throat> jerked from off her pillow in the time to see the fleeing shadows around them dis disperse. Turn on the light, she cried out to Tom, who was already awake, chest heaving beside her. They're here, aren't they? Tom sat up. His vigilant eyes scanned every corner of the room. Yeah he answered breathlessly. They're here in the room now. He got out of bed, then flicked on the lights. As was generally the case, the telltale signs of their presence lingered, if only for a moment. The coldness, the subtle but unmistakable odor, musty and stale, like a cigarette, had just been distinguished in the air around them. But the shadows were gone now, submerged, rarefied. Who knew what? Only that the terror and sense of violation remained. Tom walked back to the bed, then sat on the edge beside Elise. Do you remember any of it? She shook her head in frustration. Eyes, their eyes, like before, a table. I think, but that's all. You? A sense of confrontation, physical confrontation, with them that morning in the desert. He attempted to rein in the memory, or the sensation that the memory had created, but came away with something else. It's almost like they're trying to tell us something. Do you sense that? Not, ma not malevolent, like I thought at first. Straining, like us, to communicate. Elise dug the heels of her hands into the sockets of her burning eyes, massaging them, perhaps attempting to open them to a second kind of vision. It's been too long, Tom, she admitted, as if in defeat. 
Maybe Wolfie's right about getting professional help. He nodded wearily. Maybe, but I just keep thinking. Something's going to come of all this. Something, though. I can't say what it is. Meeting with Paul Moran, Westlake Village, California, November 17, 1990. It had been over a year since I'd seen Paul Moran. For a five-year period or so, we'd worked together at, the major, at a major New York corporation. Now he was in his own business, situated on the West Coast, where he'd been raised and educated. So that our dinner on the patio of the, or, excuse me, of, of the Orleans West was something of a reunion. Certainly, it wasn't a difficult situation to enjoy. The good company of an old friend, a magnificent California evening, and a casual dinner overlooking the lake with its sailboats and lush shoreside homes. Tall and trim, Paul's dark hair, boots, and jeans made him look like a cowboy as he stretched out on the near-empty veranda, sipping from a glass of California Chardonnay. A classic Easterner by comparison, I drank from a bottle of Heineken and was dressed in tailored slacks, a collared shirt, and Bostonian loafers. Perhaps it was the contrast as much as the similarities between us that always made the conversation flow easily, and tonight was no exception. A bit of a poet himself, Paul had always been interested in my writing and asked about it. Working on any books these days? Research mostly. Nonfiction? Yeah, as a matter of fact. I'm thinking about two projects, I explained, but haven't, deci but haven't decided between them. Moran smiled broadly. Tell me about them. Okay, I began. One would be a picture book, location shots of sites around the world where miraculous occurrences were said to have happened. Lords, Fatima, and lesser known, more current ones. Of course, there'd be text that goes along with each. I was going to call it Miracles. And the other? This one is about a former PLW I met recently. His time in prison and tortured, but more specifically his rehabilitation afterward. The man went through hell in Southeast Asia, but oddly, the after-effects of trauma like that can be more devastating than the actual situation. The coupling of the two topics had set Paul's mind working. That's the one I like, he said, taking a sip of wine. But how would you go about researching something like that? Well, extensive interviews with the man himself, of course. But a former roommate of mine at Georgetown is a psychiatrist these days. I'm hoping he'd, he'd put me in touch with another alumnus who's director of the National Trauma Center in Washington, D.C. I'd go to him for background. And that's all the centuries victims of trauma. Yeah, that's that's what Bernie. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, that's what Bernie Vitoni specializes in. I elaborated. The after effects of human trauma, victims of serious accidents, violent rape, former POWs. He's supposed to be one of the best. If someone came to see him, let's say, from out of state, suffering from true terror after an experience they'd had, do you think he could help? That's his expertise, I was quick to answer. If he couldn't help, I'm sure he'd refer them to somebody who could. Paul was pensive. I could tell very carefully weighing two allegiances, one against the other. I know a true story that's better than either of the ones you're researching, he confided, as grave as I'd ever seen him. It was told to me in strict confidence by my closest friend. But because I trust you and think you may be able to help, I'm going to tell you. I'm listening. You've read about those alien abduction cases, right? He asked. Sure, Bud Hopkins and all that. What if I told you I knew two people who were held captive and psychologically brutalized for periods of time, not unlike, not, not unlike POWs? I'd say you were putting me on. What if I told you that, to my knowledge, there's never been a story like this? 
He was emphatic. Ron, these people witnessed alien activities on a massive scale while being held captive for more than eight conscious hours. Where did it happen? The Mojave Desert, late October 1989. But, as you say, for them the aftermath has been more hellish than the experience itself. Sounds like a nightmare, I blurted. Paul folded his hands before him on the table, then sat forward in his chair. Ron, if I supplied you with the background on the case and let you meet these people to hear about what happened firsthand, would you try to arrange for Dr. Vitoni to spend some time with them to see if he could help? You mean do a book on them? If it was of interest to you, and they were willing. I stared out across the lake. A sunfish sailed by in the distance. My eyes drifted along with it as I considered the idea. The story doesn't sound like the kind of thing I do, Paul. But, of course, I'd be willing to meet them. With regard to Dr. Vittoni, I shrugged. I shrugged. This is a friend of a friend, so I make no promises. Moran's eyes locked on mine. If you met the Giffords, Ron, and hear their story, you'll want to write the book. From my point of view, frankly, I see a fit for you and for them. You'll want to write their story, and they may just be ready to tell it. This initial commitment to meet with the Giffords, made out of politeness, evolved considerably as we discussed their experience in more detail. By night's end, I was intrigued. My plans were to contact Dr. Vittoni at the National Center for Trauma in Washington, D.C. the next morning. La Mirada, California, November 20th, 1990, 8.30 p.m. Tom Gifford sat in the study of his home, wrapped in conversation with his longtime friend. I can't believe you told someone about this, Paul, he said angrily. You promised, gave me your word that it was in confidence. I know, Moran acknowledged. In retrospect, it was wrong to do, and for that I apologize. Tom Gifford's temper quelled. It was difficult to stay angry at Paul, primarily because he usually had your best interest at heart, and Tom recognized this. But I still think you should meet him. Tom's response was immediate. Do you realize that since this began more than a year ago, Elise and I have told no more than a handful of family members and you? He rose from his chair. Why on earth would we confide our innermost experiences, our most intimate feelings to a stranger? For one thing, he's a stranger to you, but not to me. And I'm telling you, Tom, it would be healthy. Healthy? Tom spat the word back at him. Yes, healthy on two counts, Warren explained. First, this account is true, and the rest of the world needs to know about it. You said that yourself. That you thought there was some reason you and Elise were chosen for the experience. Maybe this is the time to step forward, and there's another. Yeah? Ron Felber feels he can arrange some time for you with the director of the Center for Trauma in Washington, D.C., if the meeting between the three of you comes off. Maybe there'd be a book, and maybe there wouldn't. But Dr. Vittoni should be able to steer you and Elise in the right direction, at least, and that would definitely be worth something. Paul, I appreciate your interest, said Tom emphatically. But I just don't see it. What's this doctor going to do for us? How about uncover the truth? He's in D.C., Paul. He can't treat us from there. Besides, what's happening is happening. It's real. Moran leaned forward in his chair. Then prove it. How? Tom snapped back. How can anyone prove what no one will listen to? Look, when we talked last time, you told me that you and Elise worried you might be crazy. Did you mean that? Tom looked looked him square in the eye. Slowly, he nodded. The first thing he'll do is a psychological evaluation. At the end, 
he'll know, and you'll know if either of you suffers from psychiatric or organic illness. Moran was issuing a challenge. He'll help you uncover the truth. What if we don't? If you don't, I suppose people have got to start looking real close at what's been happening around this place. And if we do, Moran took a deep breath. Then you know you need help, and we try to get you some. I'm your best friend, and I'm telling you, you just can't go on living like this, Tom deliberated. Elise will never go for it. Why? For one thing, she's reluctant to tell anybody. For another, she's become very involved with the church. Frankly, I'm not sure she looks to medical science for the answer. Has it helped? Internally, it's a source of strength, but no other way. Then what do you or Elise have to lose? This might not be the answer you're looking for, but it's the first step along the way. What would we have to do? What would Dr. Vittoni want from us? If you meet with Ron, he'll tape interviews with you and Elise. He'll ask questions about you as individuals, as well as details about your Mojave encounter and what's followed. Copies of those tapes will go to Dr. Vittoni in Washington. If he thinks he can help, he's agreed to see you. Tom considered what Paul had said about wanting to uncover the truth. He found the phrase appealing because in reality, the truth was hidden from them. I'll talk to Elise and see what she thinks. But yeah, I think I'd, I think I'd like to go for it. Westlake Village, California, November 23rd, 1990, 9.30 p.m. Paul Moran was watching John Carpenter's The Thing on video with his wife, Laura, when the phone rang. She answered, still munching a handful of popcorn. Paul, it's for you. He took the receiver. Hello? Paul, this is Tom. Let's get the date set up with Ron Filber. We both decided to step forward. All right, the ex-football hero exclaimed. Interview with Giffords, Norwalk, California, December 13th, 1990. My next visit to the West Coast was about a month later. Prior to my arrival, Paul Moran had arranged several telephone conversations between the Giffords and me, all of them successful, and that an instant rapport seemed to exist. But even to our first meeting, there was a hesitancy on their part to share what was obviously a very traumatic and personal part of their lives. On the evening prior to our interviews, Paul introduced us over dinner at El Torito, a local restaurant, so that by the time they arrived at my hotel room at the Marriott Courtyard, the ice had already been broken. By anyone's standards, the Giffords were a handsome couple, well-groomed and neatly dressed. Elise was tall and trim with shoulder-length chestnut hair and a face that exuded both warmth and intelligence. Tom was a strapping man, standing six foot one and weighing 225 pounds, with dark brown hair and thoughtful, deep-set eyes. Both were nervous at the onset, but opened up once the conversation shifted to familiar topics, such as family, athletics, and the ordeal they had been through. They began by explaining how they came to be in the valley, then went on to describe the first sighting over the woods, over Woods Mountain, leading to the initial display of the nine shining objects in the desert sky. From the onset of their account, it was apparent to me that the encounter had deeply affected them. The attention to detail, the interaction between them, the feelings they attached to events as they transpired, all pointed to the fact that these were two well-educated, intelligent, and well-balanced individuals who had been stunned by the situation that enveloped them that night and the morning to follow. While describing the invasion of the valley, and their torturous hours in the back of the camper, surrounded by the illuminated figures, 
Their word choice, cadence, and inflection spoke volumes beyond what they were saying. It was obvious that both had lived with a sense of terror that few individuals will experience in their lifetimes. As significant, perhaps, were their feelings about the aftermath of their encounter and what it meant to them today. So tell me, has the experience affected you in any way since? Every single day, Elise answered directly. We're scared, and I guess confused. On the one hand, we'd like to think it was a positive, but, well, maybe it's both. How is it positive? I think we came away with another sense, as if we used a part of our brain that we've never tapped before. And sometimes in the dark, it's like we're seeing another reality, something behind this reality, she explained. People are spirits behind what is our world, but we don't know how to get back to use it again. What would you use it for? To communicate with them directly. You say that as if, the communi- as if they communicate with you. They do, she stated bluntly. And maybe that's the dark side of our experience. Please explain. Elise looked to Tom. What happened to us isn't over, he elaborated. In fact, right now I can feel the chills through my body, knowing that they're listening, monitoring what we say and do. Tom, who had been the calmer of the two throughout the past six hours, seemed suddenly angry and sullen. At night you wake up afraid and feeling like somebody's watching you, standing at the edge of our bed, black shadows, movement without anything being there. Monitored? He laughed sardonically. Definitely. So if these beings are here watching, monitoring what you're doing, why would they do that? That's the confusing part, retorted Elise. In some ways, I think we're meant to do something, and we're still waiting to find out what it is. Every day we wait with anticipation, wondering when and where it's going to happen and what to do about it. We try not to let it preoccupy us, Tom interjected. I mean, I've got to work and not let this affect me. But it's like something needs to be said or something needs to be done. He looked up to me. Tears were in his eyes. I understand, I said in a quiet voice. Are you afraid? Tom's jaw braced. If they want to take me and kill me, they can, he stated plainly. Then, softly, as if he could not comprehend the notion, but the children. How do you mean? Our house creaks, Elise said, in a complete non-sequitur. The water pipes, she explained. The building settling. But it's more than that. Tom Jr. sees them. He talks about the little monsters, and once, not long ago, when I got him one of those day-glow sticks as a present, I thought he was going to pass out. He got so upset. It's the eliminated ones. That's all he could think of when he saw it. I settled in my chair uncomfortably. So, if, if it's not necessarily good or evil, what is it that you're experiencing? There was a deep, heavy silence. We don't know, Tom said at last. We're just two people, not anyone special. I can only tell you what's happened to us. I can only tell you that it means something and that I don't think they're through with us yet. The interviews lasted two full days. By their conclusion, I was personally convinced that Tom and Elise Gifford had lived through and were living a fantastic and important experience that needed to be documented. The interviews, recorded on six two-hour tapes, were forwarded three days later to Dr. Bernard Vitoni at the National Center for Trauma in Washington, D.C. La Mirada, California, December 18th, 1990, 3.35 a.m. Tom was awake, eyes wide open, staring at the ceiling as he lay in bed beside Elise. All around the bed the shadow stood, watching. He knew it, and it bothered him no longer. 
He reached across the bed, brushing the side of Elise's cheek with his forefinger. She, too, lay on her back, staring straight up. They're here, aren't they? Yes, he answered. I can feel them around us. I can see them, too. Neither moved a muscle. The kids? She wondered, asleep. But they're... But they... But are they all right? Are they in the room with them? No, not tonight. He rolled over toward her. She stared back deep into his eyes, plaintively. This isn't right, you know. You know what they want. She nodded, peeling her nightie away and laying there for him to take. They made love. He rolled back to his side of the bed again, the being still encircling them. Elise's eyes remained open. I don't want to be pregnant, she said, an edge of fear rising up in her voice for the first time. Do you want me to be pregnant? No, he answered, but you are. Chatham, New Jersey, March 10th, 1991. After an exchange of tapes and letters and numerous telephone discussions, Dr. Vittoni agreed to clear one full day at the National Center at which time he would undertake a complete psychological evaluation of the Giffords. I contacted Tom and Elise. The date was set for Monday, June 10th, 1991. Chapter 4 National Center for Trauma, Washington, D.C., June 10th, 1991, 2.45 p.m. The Giffords sat uneasily in Dr. Vittoni's office at the National Center for Trauma in Georgetown. It had been a grueling day, especially for Elise, who was now pregnant. Over the last five hours, the doctor, already familiar with the account, had retold it from the start. Okay, the doctor, the doctor, already familiar with the account, had retell it from the start to finish. Often, oh, had them retell it from start to finish. The word had them is missing. Had them retell it from start to finish, often asking three and four, three and four questions about some detail or feeling they had described. In this way, he was able to explore the depth of their experience and gain insight into their logic and emotional makeup. Dr. Vittoni's objective was clear, to determine if the Giffords suffered from any psychiatric or organic illness that could account for their experience. The doctor entered, for, the doctor entered 40-ish. He was lean and wiry, a little taller than average, with a brown mustache and a reserved personal demeanor. He sat down in a comfortable leather chair directly across from them. One thing I can say is that you aren't crazy or psychotic in any way, he began with a smile. I also don't see any indications your experience involves psychotic hallucinations. Could you explain that, asked Elise? Certainly, he answered. There are two types of hallucinations, visual and auditory. Visual tend to go with psychotic reactions like schizophrenia or manic depression. Auditory occur in response to some physical stimulus, such as hallucinogens, alcohol, or brain tumors. His deep-set intelligent eyes attempted to engage them. Point is, they never occur together. For two people to have both auditory and visual hallucinations, and then to have them be identical, he shook his head. Impossible. So you're ruling out the possibility of mental illness, Tom ventured. That's correct, he said, nodding thoughtfully. Neither of you demonstrated any symptomology consistent with psychiatric or organic illness before or during the incident you described you today. What about drugs? Same holds. How about extremely sophisticated drugs or chemicals that the military might be testing for psychological warfare? He persisted. Nope. That doesn't change it, the doctor answered. For you to give visual hallucinations means, okay, means you'd have to be going through the same physical phenomena. So 
Fine. Let's say that both you and Elise have been exposed to or somehow ingested the same hallucinogen at the same time. It's true you've both been hallucinating. Then let's say you look up at the stars. It's possible that you both have visions of apparitions. But for, but for them to be identical and doing the same thing, that could never happen. Elise appealed to him. Doctor, if it's not mental illness and it's not drugs, what is happening to us? That I can't answer. But I do have some observations about your experience and the symptoms you described that may be helpful. The doctor slipped a notepad from out of his jacket pocket. Throughout the account, you make reference to a fog or mist that you believe the creatures use to settle you down and control your breathing. When events you know, get out of hand, is that correct? Yes. I have an alternative interpretation that views the fog as a panic reaction system. He gestured with his pencil. You both talked about pressure in the chest, hyperventilation, cold flashes, and the mist, which we'll call haziness of vision. All of these are associated with panic caused generally by overwhelming traumatic events. Dr. Vittoni turned the page of his notepad. Similarly, when you describe the creatures playing with your mind and subjecting you to psychological torment, there is also an explanation. His eyes raised from his notes. When people are put in circumstances where traumatizing, terrifying events are going on around them, they put up defenses, he explained. One of these is by disengaging from the terror of the situation by basically pretending you're not there. These visions may have been your way of doing that. Now, the fact that they were not pleasant in all cases suggests to me exactly how frightened you must have been. Again, he turned the page. The final point I'd like to make involves the reactions you've described most recently. After the experience, fear, depression, feelings of violation, and helplessness, the sense that you are being watched or monitored. Once again, these are the symptoms people experience after severe trauma. He gauged the reaction, then went on. In other words, I can't say if you're being watched as you claim, but I can say that many people would feel that way after going through an experience such as you described. Do you believe us? Tom ventured. I believe that what you're experiencing is normal reaction to highly unusual and traumatizing events outside the realm of normal human experiences. We appreciate that offer, Elise, but what can we do now? His eyebrows arched. Good question. If you were local, I suggest you spend some time here. But there's more to your situation than the treatment of trauma. He tapped his pencil against the palm of his hand. In both accounts, there's clarity of detail and at least comprehension of what's happening until the very end. Elise talks about falling asleep, fully clothed, and you, Tom, about falling asleep instantaneously with the creature still there. This, this is the part that troubles me most, he concluded. The four hours between you're going to sleep so suddenly and waking up the next morning. Dr. Vittoni stood, then walked to his desk. He opened the top drawer and produced an address book. He turned the pages, searching for a name, then jotted it on a piece of paper. You seem to be people who need to know the truth about what happened that night, that night in the desert. If that's the case and you want to pursue this, here's the name of a colleague who specializes in retrogressive hypnotic technique for victims of trauma. But I must warn you, the procedure can be emotionally jarring. Events plunged deep into the subconscious are generally there for a reason. The doctor handed the slip of paper to Tom, who read the name, Dr. William Anixter, Asheville, North Carolina. Good luck. I hope he'll be able to help, said the doctor, shaking Tom's hand, and then Elisa's. 
The Giffords thanked Dr. Vittoni, then left his office for the quiet, staid beauty of Georgetown. In his hand, Tom held the missing piece that could make the puzzle come together once and for all. Chapter 4 or Chapter 5, IV. I'm not into Greek stuff. Them. Roman numerals. Evil. I don't know if they're totally evil. It's like in life. There are some who are evil, but then there are others who are special. Totally good. And it's those I try to think about, especially when things get difficult, because I believe in those that will bring us peace. Elise Gifford. Upland Medical Center, Upland, California, August 14th, 1991. Elise Gifford lay in bed with her newborn infant, Ashley Elise, in her arms. She was weak but happy, with Tom sitting beside her on the hospital bed. She smiled weakly. I'm so happy the baby is okay. Elise gently pulled the pink blanket away so Tom could see his healthy 6-pound, 11-ounce baby girl. She's a fine-looking baby, Tom beamed. And I was so scared, so scared, Tom, that she wouldn't be normal. I know, he comforted. I know. Have you seen my mom and dad? He nodded with a proud smirk. They're ecstatic. Everybody, especially your dad. Did you tell them we decided to go through with it? The hypnosis, I mean. They support it. Think it's the right decision and wanted you to know that. She looked at him. She looked over at him. And your folks? What do they think? Carol says she's forgetting the bottom of it if we can. Though I know deep down she's terrified of what might happen. And Wolfie, his lips puckered as he struggled for the words, while Wolfie still leans towards the military explanation, despite what Dr. Vitoni said. But one way or another, he knows things can't go on this way and is for trying to put it to rest if that's possible. Elise's eyes grew weary. Unsure, as she took Ashley close to her bosom. And, what about you, Tom? Are you sure this is what's best? I am, he said, with conviction. It's the only way, for better or for worse. There's, there's a chance we'll finally know where we stand. She kissed the baby's cheek gently. I'd hope somehow it would all just go away, but it's not going to stop. They're never going to stop unless we do something. Tom reached for her hand. I know, but I'm hopeful, Dr. The doctor can help. I've done some homework. He's received degrees from George Washington University and UCLA. He's currently director of, Met, of Mountain Center of Psychiatry in North Carolina. There's no one better to go to for this kind of thing. Determination building like a wave inside him as he spoke. And if, and if he can just enlighten us, tell us something that could help make sense of it all. He sighed heavily. Well, that's all I'm asking. That's all either of us can ask, he told her. She considered his words, and then some other pattern of thought seemed to overshadow what he'd said, rendering it insignificant, even small-minded. Elise tugged the bedsheet that partially covered her and Ashley. She carefully unwrapped the soft, cotton-receiving blanket that was wound around the baby, so meticulous and tight. Finally, she handed the infant over to him now clothed only in a diaper, tiny legs pedaling in the air, but uncrying as he took her into his arms. This is a special baby, Tom. You understand that? She will grow to be a special person who will know things about them that others don't. Tom gazed into the tiny blue eyes of his newborn daughter. Deep in his soul, he knew Elise was right. Barstow, California, 
October 10th, 1991, 1.05 a.m. It was two months later, while Tom and Elise were visiting Wolfie and Carol in Barstow, that the most salient in a string of occurrences since the birth of Ashley happened. Tom Jr. and Zoe, and Zoe, who was now two years old, were sleeping in a room adjoining their grandparents' bedroom. Elise had put Ashley to bed in their room and was curled up on the couch with Tom watching a late-night movie. Elise put down the Diet Coke she was drinking and looked up to Tom. She felt it, and he did too. A chilling sensation plying its way up the small of her back until her entire body was left tingling. Inexplicably, they rose at the same time, then padded to the sliding glass door that overlooked a fenced backyard and a fathomless view of the nighttime sky. In silence, they watched as the stars began moving, much as they had in the Mojave that night, and rafts of dark, gray clouds identical to those that shrouded the huge mother craft and the desert began to form in a, t- in a tumult of roaring motion, rushing its way toward them. It was at that moment that the baby began crying. It was sudden and violent, like they had never heard her cry before. Wordlessly, Tom and Elise walked in the darkened bedroom where Ashley lay screaming. Elise took the infant into her arms, then returned it with Tom at her, then returned with Tom at her side to the living room with the TV still squawking. Beyond the plate glass door and in the backyard. The moonless sky was a jumbled emotion, hundreds of bright shiny stars now blinking as if to one another as the churning cauldron of dark clouds stopped them in their tracks. As if by instinct, Elise held the baby out into the cool night air and it stopped. Everything. As if the world was suddenly and totally shut off. Not a sound could be heard. The television stopped playing. The baby stopped crying. The clock in the room stopped ticking. The clouds and stars ceased all movement. After an unknown period of time, Tom and Elise returned to their room. They placed Ashley back into her crib and then lay down in bed together. It was them, Elise said blandly moments before they fell into a deep sleep. Upland, California, November 20th, 1991, 6.15 a.m. Tom pulled his Honda Accord in the driveway with his parents-in-law with of his parents-in-law, with Elise beside him and the three children in the back, both both Zoe and Ashley, in safety seats. Five-year-old Tom Jr. was complaining. I don't want to stay with Zoe and Ashley, he yelped. I want to go with you. Thomas, sweetheart, Mommy and Daddy are going far away on an airplane, she explained, an edge of anxiety creeping into her voice. Little guys can't go. It's only for grown-ups like us. But you never take me anywhere, he whined. Besides, I'm not little, I'm big. Tom shook his head good-naturedly. Well, whether you're big or little, there are two things I know, he said, turning off the ignition and unbuckling the seatbelt. One is that you're staying with your grandmom and granddad. Two is that we're going to miss our plane if we don't get you dropped off and our tails on the road, he added for Elise's benefit. They exited the car from both sides, lifting kids in travel bags loaded with diapers and formula and Ninja Turtle toys. Vivian stood at the open door, wide awake, her blonde permed hair already brushed and just so despite the early hour. Her blue twinkling eyes seemed nervous and weary as Elise handed her Ashley with Thomas Jr. trailing behind, looking glum. Tom, feeling harried and concerned about making the flight, led Zoe toward her grandparents, his arms full of basic necessities for three small children. Inside the house stood John. Sensing the rush, he put his cup of coffee to the side, then extended his long arms toward Tom. Here, let me help you with that. 
In a matter of minutes, all three children and all the paraphernalia that went along with them have been transported from car to home. Remember to warm the formula before you give it to Ashley, at least reminded. And don't give Zoe any chocolate, no matter how often she asks for it. Vivian nodded, taking the information in one bit at a time, then repeating it to herself mentally, so as to remember. Don't worry, dear. Tom stood behind Elise impatiently. Elise, we've got to go. At last, Elise turned to leave. Kids behind. Kids behind as Vivian and John followed them to the door. Goodbye, said Elise to her mom as Tom made his way to the car. And thanks for taking the children. Vivian just shook her head with tears in her eyes. Then Elise moved forward, double time toward the car. Kids, John called out as the car doors opened. I want to tell you, we're proud of what you're doing. It takes a lot of guts. You're very brave. Tom and Elise listened, touched by his words. And one more thing. Your mom and I have had a lot of time to think about it. And we believe you. We believe everything you told us happened the day, you know, happened the way you said it. Tom and Elise waved one final time as they entered the car, their faces flushed with emotion. Tom turned the ignition. The engine started. They were off to LAX and the most significant meeting of their lives. Chapter 2 on this section. Mountain Center of Psychiatry, Asheville, North Carolina, November 21st, 1990. 91, sorry. Lori. My wife and I met the Giffords on Thursday morning, November 24th at 7.45 a.m. at the Asheville Marriott. Tom was dressed in jeans, a collared sports shirt, loafers. Elise wore a pair of black slacks, a long print sweater and flats. Both were nervous as we waited for a cab that seemed to take forever and get into the hotel. The wait accentuated everyone's anxiousness about the day, including mine. At 8.05 a.m., the cab arrived and took us the five-mile drive to the Mountain Center of Psychiatry. Lori sat in the front with the driver. Elise, Tom, and I were in the back. So how are you two feeling about this today? I asked cautiously. The word on everyone's mind came back from came from Elise's lips. Nervous, she shivered, but anxious to get it all over, really. Same here, voice Tom. We've been living with this thing so long, for so long and in so many ways that I've never been more ready to face it head on. Within a few minutes, the car stood before the center. I paid the cab driver. The four of us walked up the long stone path leading to the entrance. Inside, Dr. Annixter greeted us cordially. He was a heavy-set, bearded man in his 40s with a quiet, depthful way about him that bespoke his professionalism and experience. After the formalities had been gone through, he said simply, please come this way. The doctor's session room was comfortable and old-fashioned, with a sofa and soft-cushioned chairs. The painted walls and pine paneling were done in muted beige and brown colors. He introduced us to the medical student who would be operating the video equipment, then positioned Lori and me off to one side and out of the subject's vision. Dr. Anikstrom began by explaining the clinical nature of his approach to the session. His questions would be worded in neutral terms so as to suggest nothing. He would make it clear from the onset to his subjects that an answer such as I don't know or I'm not sure were acceptable in order to discourage unsure or enhanced responses by his subjects while in a hypnotic state. The session began. 9.15 a.m. Dr. Annixter looked from his armchair to Tom Gifford, the first to be induced. He asked him to concentrate on a discrete spot on the ceiling, then took him through the hypnotic procedure. It concluded with him walking 
to Tom, lifting his arm by the wrist, then dropping the limp appendage down into his lap. Dr. Anixter then performed the identical procedure on Elise, so that by 10.05 a.m., both subjects were under and totally responsive to his voice and the commands he put forward. The doctor opened with probes concerning familiar known events during their experience, such as the period when they felt the truck being when they felt the truck being lifted into the craft, then focused on each of their individual accounts just prior to and including the missing four hours. Tom, I'm going to begin with you, he stated in a firm rat voice. Focus on the period of time you previously described as being black. Go back a few minutes before that time. Everyone in the room watched and waited as Tom Gifford began. I'm sitting at the end of the bed in the back of the camper, looking out the back window. What do you remember? Tell me in your own words. Things have calmed down. The smaller beings have left and scattered back to the desert. The activities outside have subsided, <clears throat> though I could still see the searcher moving out over the surface of the desert. What else? What else do you see? His eyelids fluttered furiously as he watched, as if viewing a movie. Next thing were beings. The larger beings approached the back of the truck. Seems like they were moving toward the back, wanting to take a look. They just keep on coming. And I can't. And I can really smell their thick, musty, sulfury odor and feel a tingling sensation in my belly when they were close. How are you feeling? Doctor asked. I wanted to reach out and offer my hand and touch them, but Elise was too scared, so I just sat watching and asking, Why? wanting to jump out of the truck, offer my hand in peace. I'd gotten over the feeling of being scared. I wanted a physical encounter. Where did you think where, where, okay, where, where did you think you were at this point? Same piece of land, but it seemed we were just not on earth. Like someone had taken a giant shovel, scooped up a huge plot of earth, and sucked it up toward the center of the ship. Even when we went to sleep, we knew it was different. The temperature was colder, and it felt like we were floating with the earth we were on, five or six feet thick, than just air underneath. He spoke now with certainty and resentment. We were inside the craft, all right, feeling like being in a floating museum or a vast, vast collection cavity. What's the next thing you remember? I thought it was over for now and time to rest. I said to Elise, it's time to lay down and sleep. We had a plastic container in the back, and we both urinated in it because we had to, and we were too scared to leave the camper. I got back in bed fully clothed with, with boots on, stretched out crosswise on the bed, kissed Elise goodnight, their light still beaming through the window, then fell asleep. And afterward, waking up all of a sudden in the morning and having, having the sun fill the camper, thinking, where am I? What happened? The doctor nodded, expecting the, expecting the blocking Tom was experiencing. He continued, take a deep breath. Let your mind search. Let the memory come back on its own. Then speak out and share it with us. Take your time. Lori and I sat on the edge of our seats in anticipation. What would come of this? Already, Anxiety had established... <coughs> and Nixter, I'm sorry. Anxiety. <laughs> and Nixter had established they were inside the ship at the time they fell asleep. At last, Tom Gifford spoke. His face was a mass of concentration. His vision was hazy for the period though obviously he was struggling to see it. I see bright, bright blinking lights. I'm on my back encircled by people looking at me. I see their outlines in the light, strange shadows, but it's so bright. Go on, please, persisted Anixter. Concentrate. 
Take a deep breath, let it out, and see if you can remember more. I'm fighting, fighting and resisting them in the camper. Tom is suddenly agitated. Elise is grasping for my hand as if she's being pulled away. They're white, white all over, and I'm fighting. He throws his head to one side. I want to remember things about that, but the memories don't seem concrete, more like images. <clears throat> suddenly, Elise's voice rang out with a volume and hysteria that set our teeth on edge. Bug eyes, she screamed. A nixter swung around to her. Say more. It's one of the white ones, she said, perplexed. Then, in a panicked voice, can't move. I'm just scared. She began crying. I want to go home now, she wept, her chest heaving as terror rose up inside her. Long fingers, she added, suddenly tense as she sees it. There's three around my face, almost touching, but not touching it. What's on the other side of the fingers? A nixter prodded. Light, white, 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 light. I remember this hallway, all lit up in blue lights, even in the ground. I guess I'm walking, but it doesn't feel like I'm walking. Go on, please. It's like a tunnel, long, no room, just a long tunnel, out of a tunnel of blue lights, until finally there's an opening, nothing in there. Who are you with? The white guy. Where is your husband? I don't know where he is, she moans. I can feel him in my mind, though. I feel like I'm linked to him. We can't talk, but we both know we're going through the same thing. An extra sat forward in his chair. Des describe him, the white one. She concentrates, her eyes flutter in rapid, sudden motion. Big head, real white. I can't tell what they're made of. Like skin so translucent it glows. But you can't see veins and things. She strained to see. I guess he's wearing a shiny covering, too. I don't know what kind of material that is, she hesitated. I see something on his chest. It's like an arrow. Just the top of an arrow. What else? Just three fingers and a thumb. Really shiny. Really long, she elaborated. And then with fear and distaste, but I just hate his eyes. So dark you can't even see them. Can't see the parts can't see the parts like our eyes. They're big when they go when they go skinny at the ends. That tiny nose, practically just two holes, little tiny mouth. I don't think there are teeth or even lips. A little chin, no hair, skinny body like a five-year-old's, almost my height. What happens at this point? What does he say or do, if anything? I'm supposed to just lie on the table. It's okay. She thought for a moment. I don't know why he keeps looking in my eyes. He puts his fingers on my face, just like he did at home that, that time when he burned me she explained. He just moves his hand about five inches from my face, then goes down my body the length of it. Please continue. I'm not supposed to remember anything else. I only remember when, when, when they want me to. Were you told that? I don't know. How do you know when it's all right to remember? I don't know. If you have some way of knowing when it's all right to remember, what does it feel like? The words spewed out of Elisa's mouth like poison. Control. Say more. They always know where we are, she spat out angrily. They always know what we're thinking. They think they can do just any, anything they want. Please continue. Say what you're comfortable with. What would you like us to know? I don't think they want to hurt us, she spouted. But I know they can, and they will if they have to. At this point, I jotted a handwritten note, hoping the information might help jog Elisa's memory, then handed it to Dr. Anixter. You may want to ask about the two marks she found on her neck the the morning after the incident. And Nixter took the note and read it and nodded. 
Did you find two marks on your neck the next morning? She nodded. How did they get there? Elise swallowed hard. I was laying on the table, she answered tensely, and there was this silver wand, and it had two tiny openings at the end. They just put it on my neck. It didn't hurt. Then remembering. That's what was going on. That's what was going over my body, not just his hand. Real shiny. What did it feel like? Like a little buzz, a zap, a little shock of current. That's all. I'm going to say, why is it dangerous to talk? I don't know. Is there more you know that you won't share? I can't tell you, she growled threateningly. Dr. Nixter was puzzled at the brick well he had run into. He gave Elise instructions to continue thinking about other pieces of the account that were safe to share, then turned his attention back to Tom. The last recollections you told me about, Tom, were fighting and resisting the white beings. He paused to let the words stir recollections from the moment. I want you to take a deep breath, focusing on that moment, and tell me more of what happens next. Tom took a deep breath. He let it out. He seemed comfortable, able to remember again. That odor. The same as before from the truck. It's everywhere. But now I'm not in the truck. I'm being led down a tunnel. I don't know where. With all white walls, a light guided by a bunch of people on the side pulling me. Where is Elise now? I'm alone. By myself. It's like we've been together to, it's like we've been together going down at first and are now separated with Elise taken to another area. He bunched up in his chair suddenly. I remember trying to get away. That's all right. Calm down, Nixter instructed. What happens next? Through the tunnel. Lots of bright lights. I'm being led by several of the white beings into an open room. It's an operating room. They put me on a table in the center. He squirmed uncomfortably in, in his seat as if struggling to get away. Dr. Nixter spoke in calm, soothing tones. It's all right. No one's going to hurt you. What happens now? Tom continued speaking rapidly, fearfully. There's one big round light in the center staring down at me. I'm laying on my back, restrained by, by my arms and legs, looking up and seeing the outline of people or beings looking down on top of me. Tom's eyes closed, then shut more tightly. The light is so bright, it's hard to see. But I'm with them, fighting. There's an examination probe with an instrument. Go on. I never talked about it. It's okay to talk. Tell me. what What is it you've never talked about? They insert it in my body cavity. I remember fighting. It hurts. Pain in my arms and lower stomach. He flails his arms in the air. I'm telling them to stop. Does it stop? Asked the mixer. Yeah, it stops. His head lowers. I want to go home. I want to see my kids again. Doctor and Nixter was pensive as he let the past 60 minutes settle in his mind. Then he heard Elise murmur. Seems like all that bright light would hurt your eyes. What did you say? He asked urgently. Seems like the lights would hurt your eyes, but they don't. Are you alone, Elise? Except for the white being. Then what? He prodded. Then into the room with the silver table. That same light is in the hallway. And one big round white light. How did you get on the table? It lowers. I sat on it and lay down. No pillow, no blanket, and it didn't hurt. How did you know what to do? I just knew. I knew. He can tell me with his mind. No words. He puts ideas in my head. Is he in communication with you now? He can if he wants. Are you being watched now? Elisa's head was angled toward the ceiling as before. Eyes closed. Still directed at the solitary spot. They know what I'm doing by probes. 
The three observers in the room, hearing every syllable of what was being said, gasped. gasped. A Nixter had done it, broken through at least one of the barriers that separated us humans from them. The doctor spoke slowly, methodically now. Please explain what you mean by probes. Elise reached up with her right hand, I still closed, and began pawing at her neck, the right side, near the jugular. What does that mean? She felt the side of her neck, running her fingers along the flesh. I can see you're touching your neck, he told her. What does that mean? Elise continued searching that area of her neck with her fingers as she spoke. That's what they shot into my neck. That time on the table with the silver wand. An extra paused for a moment as he considered his next question and how best to position it, then said, When you say they're watching you by probes, what do you mean? She spoke with absolute conviction now. The word shot out like a military command, tracking device put inside of me. That's how they know where I am and how to communicate. How do you know that? I don't know. Is it something you're fairly certain of? Elise's hand had still not returned to her side as she continued in her hypnotic state to feel for the device to feel for the device shot deep into her neck that night. Yes, I'm certain, she answered, sadly and without hesitation. You guys want me to go on? Because it goes on to 11, 10 a.m. So you want me to go on and finish as far as I can go? How about we go to 7.30? Okay. 11, 10 a.m. A chill passed through each observer in the room as Dr. Anixter, Lori, and I attempted to piece the account together. Without question, they had been on board the craft in a holding chamber long before they went to sleep. Apparently drugged or entranced in some manner, the two were taken from the truck by the white beings, at least it described. A violent struggle ensued between Tom and their captors as they walked them into the brightly lit tunnel and separated them. Each was then taken into distinct operating rooms where Tom was examined anally with a probing device and Elise was scanned with a wand-like instrument before a tracking device was implanted deep into the base of her neck. It all seemed so fantastic, and yet, to those familiar with the account and everything the Giffords had been through, what could make more sense? Like animals tracked for study, Tom and Elise have been trapped, evaluated psychologically and physically, then released the specimens to live in their own natural environment. Small wonder these horrible bone-chilling nightmares of the past two years. Wasn't it obvious why now, psychological explanation aside, they felt watched and monitored? Clearly they had been. It was Dr. Inixter's mission now to find out why. The doctor took a deep breath. The session had been arduous from everyone's point of view. An emotional roller coaster that had Elise, as the doctor was about to begin, quietly sobbing. Elise, Dr. Nixter began once more, you said before that you don't think the beings want to hurt you. But they would if they have to. Have they ever hurt either of you? Severe headaches and nightmares, Tom answered. Stress at having our emotions pushed to the limit and drained. The procedure was painful, he went on to explain. But we feel they've gotten bolder, more aggressive lately. How do you mean? Like when they burned Elise's face? Like when they burned... I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. <sighs> How do you mean? Like when they burned Elise's face, he said, resentfully. They've never done anything like that before. What happened? It was early in the morning, Tom expounded. Maybe 3 a.m. when I... 
just lay there staring at the ceiling and thinking it seems like dark shadows moving on the ceiling. But maybe it's just the trees. And maybe it's just not the trees, as I began to feel a presence of the white ones in the room. Go on, please. I opened my eyes and was shocked. I thought my heart had stopped when I saw its face directly over mine. I don't know how he could stand behind me because the headboard was there, he reflected, watching the movement in his mind's eye. But he did. Then he ran his long, three-fingered hand over Lisa's face, not touching her, then touching her. I saw the welts from his fingers rise up right on Lisa's cheek as I watched, and that's when I knew it. it was in a dream, and began screaming. What else do you remember? asked the doctor. The next morning, there were burn marks on her face. A lightning bolt on one cheek, and the imprint of three fingers on the other. Elise called her mom, hysterical, trying to remember how it happened. Then, I remembered the white guy being behind the bed, and me snapping pictures with the Polaroid. But it was like it never happened. They always do that. He complained. Do you have the pictures? Yes, he answered. Three of the five came out. But by morning, they turned black. Dr. Nixter settled in his chair, attempting now to get them talking more easily about safe topics so he could move forward toward the ones they'd been unwilling to discuss earlier. Any other experiences where the beings have injured or hurt you? Baby Ashley, said Elise, without thinking, then perplexed. Something to do with Ashley. Say more. It wasn't the right time in my cycle to get pregnant. I shouldn't have gotten pregnant. But that night, Tom looked at me and said, You're pregnant. And I said, I know. And he said, Is it the right time for you to be pregnant? And I said, No. She racked her brain. Something to do with the baby. What do you mean? She sat up straight in her chair, eyes popped open. They were there, she shrieked at the revelations now spilling from her unconscious to her conscious mind. They were in the room with us that night. Be calm, and Nixter coached. Take a deep breath and continue. She did. The instructions seemed to pacify her, soothe her torn nerves and, and psyche, as she settled once again in the cushioned armchair. They were watching as she recalled, her eyes fluttering in sudden rapid motions while the images passed before her. It's like we both knew they were watching, but didn't even care. We had sex and I got pregnant and we both knew it. And we knew and we knew that they knew it. She uttered astonished. It's like I see them, but I can't see them. Her voice trembled. I was so scared. I didn't know what Ashley was going to come out being like. Then suddenly then suddenly passive. But she's fine, and they left us alone for almost the whole time. I was pregnant. The doctor nodded. The moment was ripe to delve deeper. Do either of you have a sense of what it is they want? Why they've done what they've done? It was Tom who answered. I keep having these feelings of fear and frustration and contradiction. But I don't think it's over. I don't feel as threatened as I did the fir at first. And in a way, I believe there may be an underlying source of good. How do you mean? Their presence in here, her presence is here and always has been more advanced, he explained. Her hope is that our world might be able to see or encounter them without mass hysteria through making contact with select people to help raise consciousness and communicate that there are intelligent beings and a whole existence that parallels our world. Where do they come from? Tom strained as if trying to recapture the memory of an elusive dream. They may have been here all the time, he answered, his eyelids going through a series of rapid motions, existing spiritually, then becoming physical. 
They were from other planets, but are more spiritual now, a power and force. And why do they want to make contact? To deliver a message to the, that the world needs to be as one. That if there's war or massive destruction, they will intervene. What else do you know? He shook his head from time to side, frustrated. It's unclear. Too unclear to go on. Just thoughts now, and images of them. Dr. Anixter accepted the answer. He turned in his seat toward Elise, who sat with her body lax, head tilted to one side, lying on her right shoulder. Elise, do you have any idea what these beings want, or why they're here? It was macabre watching Elise, watching as Elise sprang up in her chair, suddenly animated and alert. Her voice, rather than soft and emotional, took on a new cadence which was clipped and direct, quite unlike her. They want to make contact with the population. Tom and I are specimens, imperfect, like the human race. When we're ready to communicate with them face to face, then possibly the world will be too. Her actions, such as edging forward in her chair at the moment, seemed mechanical. As did her voice as she continued. They have to study our reactions so they know how to approach us. They don't have emotions like ours. So they need to they need us to teach them. They need to understand humans. Do you have a sense as to who they are and where they've come from? He repeated. There are five there are five galaxies. Theirs is the next closest. In order for all five galaxies to work together, one day they have to start, and they're starting with us. So we'll be united galaxies. What else do you know? Anixter asked, feeling as if he was in contact with someone other than Elise. I know where the universe ends, she said, rattling the words off in staccato fashion, like rounds from a machine gun. Is that something you can put into words? Now, there was no denying. Something incredible was happening. Our universe ends where theirs begins. Our universe ends when all its matter stops mattering to us and starts mattering to them. Everyone in the room looked to one another, stunned at what they heard and what they were saying. For now, sitting on the edge of the out-of-date cushioned armchair sat Elise Gifford, her body rigid and vibrating with newfound energy. Twelve seventeen p.m. As was earlier agreed, Dr. Nixter and I then switched places so that I would be able to ask questions. Would you mind now if Ron asked some questions of you? No, she answered. I began cautiously. Elise, why do you think there are things you don't want to remember? I don't know. Is there something preventing you from sharing what you know? I can't tell you. If these beings are in contact with you, tell me what you know about them. God created our world in his image, but not theirs, she croaked, or any of the others. Are there many different kinds of beings? Yes, different ones, different hybrids. When do you think this communication will happen between the aliens and humans? I don't know. In my lifetime? How long will you live, she retorted. The hairs on the back of my neck raised. In a normal man's lifetime? Our children, she said at last. It was then that I had a distinct feeling that I was in a chess match of words. Elise had begun to take satisfaction in the cleverness, the sharpness of her responses. I tried a new tack, waiting, waiting a moment for the dust to settle, then beginning again in a slower and more calculated manner. Are we washed as a population regularly? Yes. Are many different kinds of beings? Sent on missions from the one supreme, she said, finishing my sentence. When does that, what does that mean? 
There's one supreme being that controls all of them. He sends missions here. They're not here of their own accord. This is like a president or like a god, she responded with crackling directness. What else do you know about the one supreme? The beings could care less if they were here or not, she continued in that same clipped and militant voice. They're just following orders. I recouped. Where do I take this from here? I asked myself. The answer I came up with was to retreat back to perhaps the most poignant moment of the session. You talked about the universe and matter earlier. You said, our universe ends where theirs begins. Our universe ends when its matter stops mattering to us and starts mattering to them. I reflected briefly on what Tom had said concerning their intervention into our world if war or mass destruction seemed imminent. What does that mean? I don't know, she answered simply. The missions. These aliens are on. Are they friendly or unfriendly? They're neutral. They could care less. What does the one supreme want? I asked pointedly. For all the galaxies to live harmoniously together. Do we have a separate god from the one supreme? No. What else do you know about this entity? Is it being is it a being like the others? Read the Bible, she quipped. Again, I stopped to strat to to reset my strategy. Do they know about our project? Sure. Do they care if I rephrased it? Well, it's apparently something they, they don't want to stop. Suddenly the mask dropped, her face wrinkled in a mark distaste. They're into everything, just everything, she fumed. Movies like E.T. and Close Encounters, television shows like Star Trek, and even comedies like Alf and Mork and Mindy. It's already in everyone's mind. But so deep, they don't even know it. All part of their plan to desensitize people for the contact. Is that what you think I pressed, or what they've communicated to you? She seemed puzzled and surprisingly vulnerable at that moment. It was a question she too had grappled with. It pops into my head like I know, she speculated as much as to herself as to me or anyone. It's like someone told me, but no one's ever told me. That's when I think I'm going crazy. I leaned forward, coming very near to her. Elise, the part you don't want to talk about. Is it physical or psychological? I don't know. Is there some kind of mental block preventing you from discussing it? I don't know, she repeated stubbornly. I stayed on it, equally tenacious. The part you don't want to talk about. Is it important or unimportant to our project? She shook her head in the negative. I don't know. I was getting closer, beginning to feel the resistance weekend. Did Tom have a similar experience? Her eyes fluttered rapidly. Her entire body began to tremble. He couldn't have had the very same experience because he's not a woman. She hesitated, then added, but Lori knows. Dr. Nixter sees the moment. Are you saying you told Lori what happened? No, but she knows. We turned to Lori, who sat to the left of, the, of Elise in the corner of the room, nonplussed. They used their probe to examine me inside and out, she spouted, hurt and angry. They might as well have raped me. Then, once again, evenly, almost as an afterthought, that's it, that's the part I didn't want to tell you. Dr. Nixter switched places with me at this point and took charge of the session. Step by step, he brought Tom and Elise out of their hypnotic state, reassuring them that the information they had discussed was important and needed to be talked about, instructing them that participating in the session was right and good. The final instruction the doctor gave was that they would not suffer from pangs of guilt or anxiety and that they would come out of their 
trance is refreshed and psychologically disposed toward a feeling of overall well-being. Individually, they awakened, Tom first and then Elise. Neither had any recollections of what had occurred or been said while in the hypnotic state, despite the fact that they had been under for nearly four, four hours that they believed mere moments had passed since the doctor induced them. Tom stretched his long, muscular body, yawning and obviously stiff from being in one position for that length of time. Elise noticed the wetness on her cheeks and wiped the mascara that had smeared from the corners of her eyes. She fluffed her hair, then looked to Dr. Nixter, sincere and ardent. So what do you think, doctor? She asked timidly. Are we crazy? And Nixter was equally earnest when he answered. No, Elise, neither of you is crazy. All right, 7.30, we're going to stop there and continue next week. All I can say is wow, 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 right? So uh, it's going to continue. It looks like it's going to continue in the um, offices as they end up discussing what came of the um, hypnosis session. So, yeah. So anyway, I'm going to stop there. Oh, we're really close. According to this, there's 11 minutes left in the book. Well, huh. So 11 minutes left. Do we go on and just wrap it up or wait till next week? What do you think? All right, well, you know what? Jeez, we're close on this. Let me grab, you know what? I'm going to do something I don't normally do is get some water. And I think we've got 11 minutes left in the book. Why don't we just wrap it? Let me get some water. Hang on. We can wrap this book up. We'll start something new next week. How does that sound? Oh, wow. Okay. So we've got 11 minutes left, which would put us at 740. Why don't we go ahead and just do that, if you guys are willing? We'll just wrap this bad boy up. And I think we were that close to finishing. But I gotta wet my whistle because it's dry in here. So let me do that. And then we'll continue. Next week I'll pick another book. How's that sound? Even if it's some short stories or something. So let me go ahead. We're just gonna continue then. Let's just do it. And uh, another 11 minutes and we're wrapped up. 2 p.m. Sandwiches and sodas were brought in for the group as Dr. Nixter reviewed and discussed the videotapes with the subjects. Both Tom and Elise were shocked and pleased by what they heard and saw. At last, they had been vindicated. Their account of the events that transpired on the night of October 21st and the morning of the 22nd had been verified under clinical hypnosis. Finally, there was an explanation. <clears throat> Excuse me, Finally, there was an explanation for the missing four hours and the strange and terrifying events that had followed even to that morning. I knew what my conclusions were as we sat in Dr. Nixter's session room that afternoon. It was time now for him to share with us his professional opinion. Well, doctor, I said at last, it's been a long, interesting day. How do you see all of this? And Nixter ran his left hand along the right side of his beard, thoughtfully then reclined his stout frame back in his armchair. I sometimes do work for the FBI using retrogressive hypnotic technique for witnesses that may not remember all that they know about a person or event. 
His sharp, discerning eyes scan the faces before him. In those situations, if there is doubt or needs to be speculation on exactly what happened, I lean toward the, ver the version that requires the fewest assumptions. He turned the palm of his left hand up in the air, explaining, In this case, we could say that the account is fabrication. He shrugged. But why? The situation has endured with them for more than two years. There is no mental illness. So why would two normal, intelligent, and adjusted people make up a story that's upset their lives so totally? He shook his head. No, for this to be true, it requires many far-flung assumptions, so that it is unreasonable to believe. The other possibility, I asked, intrigued by the process he was taking us through. He nodded, placing his hands behind his head, then sank back into the chair, eyes lifting to the ceiling as he collected his thoughts. Having eliminated mental illness and the possibility of fabrication, the next step would be that the Giffords did, in fact, see and participate in an experience in the Mojave Desert that day, perhaps a military exercise, but somehow misinterpreted. You know, but somehow misinterpreted what happened. His discerning stare dropped now to the eye level with each of us. But no, the detail here is too exacting, and the thoughts and descriptions too tightly organized for that kind of massive misunderstanding. He continued, and then, as Dr. Vittoni points out, for two people to agree so closely and to have their accounts so divergent from any kind of military exercise I can imagine. He shook his head. Again, many, many assumptions would be, re be required here. Dr. Inixter turned to me, then to the Giffords. No. Tom and Elise, I don't think you're crazy. What I think personally and put forward as my professional opinion is that on October 21st and 22nd, 1989, you both had a close encounter of the third kind, unlike any I have ever heard of or seen in my professional experience. I watched Tom and Elise's reactions, positive and relieved. So how does that make you feel, I asked myself, quietly gratified. It makes me feel happy, answered Elise, to know after all this time that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't just us and that it really did happen. Tom smiled. It was reserved, but to, but depthful, rife with satisfaction. It makes me feel good, he said, a glint of optimism in his eye that I had never seen before. Real good about now and about the future. Chapter 3, La Mirada, California, December 23rd, 1991, 3.30 p.m. The Christmas tree lights glared red and green and blue as a Lionel train, complete with coal car and caboose, circled, to circled and Tom Jr. and Zoe played enraptured. Beyond the ornaments and circle of tracks and children and children, adults filled the living room of the Giffords home. Familiar faces brimming with holiday cheer talked and drank eggnog and chilled California wine in plastic cups. There were Wolfie and Carol, John and Vivian, Tom's good friend Paul Moran, Lori and me, and an assortment of neighbors. In a far corner of the room, sitting on a sofa chair, I spied Elise with, a with Ashley in her arms. The baby was crying as Elise attempted to console her. I decided to walk over. Nice party, I commented, observing the caring gentleness that Elise demonstrated with the delicate fussing infant. Yes, she said, looking up, if only for a second. Tom and I are so glad you could make it. Soon, Ashley was quiet resting peacefully on her mom's shoulder. I took a sip of wine from the clear plastic cup. So now that it's come this far, how are you and Tom coping? Better, she ventured. 
Tom's been offered a new job and will probably be moving to Salt Lake City, she chuckled. Kind of ironic, isn't it? Sure is. Makes you wonder what this whole thing's been about. Any ideas? I mean, what's your final take on it? At least smile contentedly, seemingly at peace with herself and the situation for the first time since I've known her. I don't feel like it's over, she answered, glancing intuitively at Ashley, who slept soundly in her arms, but I don't fear it anymore. It's like that horrible feeling of constant dread has been lifted. Why? I asked, curious. What's changed? In the midst of the conversation and laughter, the loud stories and sounds of children playing, Elise allowed herself a moment of contemplation and perhaps prayer. In many ways, that last session with Dr. Nixter left, the, left us left as many questions as answers. But what I keep remembering is at the moment towards the end of our experience when the gremlins were running wild and the eliminated ones were trying to break us and it looked like we were going to be killed, I kept remembering that in the end it was the angel, the comforter, who dominated. She looked up to me, her face more radiant, more alive than I had ever seen it. I think that she's a symbol of something, maybe hope for the future. The words tumbled in my mind like so many children rolling playfully down green grassy hillsides. In the end, it was the angel, the comforter who dominated. Eplog. In the preface to the Mojave incident, I suggested that the giver's experience in the Mojave Desert on October 21st and 22nd, 1989, would change the way the reader viewed man's place in the world forever. Like anyone who has read or heard what happened, I was compelled to evaluate each of the alternative explanations based on facts of my own life experience. After having rigorously studied their first-hand descriptions, along with the tapes of their individual psychiatric sessions, I am personally convinced that an extremely rare event in human development has happened. Rather than some UFO or alien encounter, the Giffords, during those 12 hours and afterward, were allowed to view conscious and with duration an entire level of existence that runs contemporary with our own. Historically, there is undeniable precedent for the existence of this other world. As mentioned in the body of the book, the ancient Indian tribes of the Mojave acknowledged it. The Greeks saw their gods on Mount Olympus manipulating the lives of humans on the giant chessboard. Modern organized religions speak of angels sent down from heaven to, to counsel prophets and holy men. Philosophers, from Socrates to Camus, struggle, to, struggle with the concepts of free will and, and predestination. But in the final analysis, these metaphors become incredibly real, for perhaps we are indeed watched by spiritual mentors mentors who allow us for our free will and choice up to a point that being that be that being self-annihilation. For generations, humans have known subconsciously that there is another level of existence, spiritual forces, as Tom describes them locked in a moment-to-moment -moment struggle over the destiny of humankind. For generations, glimpses into this world, shaded by fear and insecurity, have occurred regularly. Perhaps soon we will be in a position to accept the non-traditional, yes, radical viewpoint. So simple, and yet so beyond our reach. There is another world, more advanced and more involved in our future than we can imagine. In truth, they have been here since the beginning of time. The devil might be a presence from another universe. We might be fighting an implacable enemy out there, and the devil might be the agent of the implacable enemy with God as the tired general fighting, as the tired general fighting that war with his own agents of hope. And that's the end of the book, guys.
We did it. We completed this one. Fantastic. Let me shut this baby down. Wow. I didn't see the end coming that fast, right? But we did it. Okay. Anyway, I will start a new book next week. I'll have to figure out which one it's going to be once I got to get permission from the publisher or author to read. But I'll, I'll find something fun, you know, cool to read. I hope you enjoy. I hope you enjoyed that book. It creeped me out. It still creeps me out. Look at this. I made this all short. Look at that. What I get for like, hang on. What I get for drifting with this. Okay. All right. So um, I want to thank you guys for coming this week. And I'm glad we get. I'm glad we actually got to finish this book. <laughs> I feel so funny with this mic because it's so short right now. There we go. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I had nightmares. This book drove me crazy. Just. <laughs> But anyway, tomorrow, uh, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time, uh, Mar Mariana Corwitz is going to be with us. It's going to be kind of a change of pace because Mariana Corwitz studies names. She studies uh, how our names and, and correspond to numbers and how they affect our and how, how those numbers and names affect our lives. So she's going to be with us to talk about that tomorrow. So it's going to be a pretty cool show. Um, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show... Share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And again, if you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. Uh, there's that little guy down at the bottom right-hand corner, the little ghosty guy with the Sherlock Holmes hat and the super magnifying glass. That's our mascot, and you can subscribe. We have almost 250 videos sitting over there. And again, um, that little ticker at the bottom, you know, uh, thanks everybody who has donated. I really appreciate it. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't, I couldn't be doing this without you. But uh, there's still bills to pay, so we're still working on that. First of the month comes, you know, here we are trying to shell out money we don't have. But um, anyway, I really appreciate anybody that's donated up to, uh, up to this point with the show. I really do. And if you could find it in your hearts to do that, I'd appreciate it. Uh, that's at uh, paypal.me at California Haunts or at Venmo and then just type in California Haunts. But I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. And again, Mary Mariana Corvitz will be with us tomorrow to talk about names and numbers and how it affects our lives so i will see you all tomorrow okay let's see let me my page here have a good one and thank you all for spending your saturday with me i appreciate it <laughs>